But this not having the desired effect, neither, it is followed with the third indulgence or toleration emitted by proclamation dated 28th of June 1687, excellently well, excellently well calculated for obtaining his end, wherein, after a solemn declaration of his intention to maintain his archbishops and bishops, he does, by a sovereign authority, prerogative royal and absolute power, suspend, stop, and disable all penal and sanguinary laws made against any for nonconformity to the religion established by law, granting liberty to all the subjects to meet and serve God after their own way in private houses or chapels or places purposely hired or built for that use with an injunction to take care that nothing be preached or taught that might in any way tend to alienate the hearts of the people from him and his government. But, notwithstanding the premises, strictly prohibiting all field meetings against all which all his laws and acts of Parliament are left in full force and vigor, and all his judges, magistrates, and officers of forces commanded to prosecute such as shall be guilty of said field conventicles with the utmost rigor. And all this under pretense that now, after this his royal grace and favor, there is not the least shadow of excuse left for these meetings. Wherefore, he is confident that none will, after these liberties and freedoms given to all, to serve God in their own way, further presume to meet in these assemblies, except such as make a pretense of religion, to cover their treasonable designs against his royal person and peace of his government. <clears throat> the most of the Presbyterian ministers in Scotland took the benefit of this wicked and boundless toleration, chiefly designed in favors of papists. And a large number of them, being met at Edinburgh, agreed upon, and, in the name of all the rest, sent an address of thanks to the tyrant for his toleration, stuffed with the most loathsome and blasphemous flatteries to the dishonor of God, to the reproach of his cause, and betraying of his church. For in this address, dated July 21, 1687, designating themselves the loyal subjects of this true religion and liberty destroyer, they offer him their most humble and hearty thanks for his favor bestowed and bless the great God who put it into his heart to grant them this liberty, which they term a great and surprising favor, professing a fixed resolution still to maintain an entire loyalty, both in their doctrine and practice, consonant to their known principles, which, according to the Holy Scriptures, are contained in the Confession of Faith, and they humbly beseech that any who promote disloyal principles and practices as they disown them, may not be looked upon as any of theirs, whatever name they may assume to themselves, and that as their address, as their address comes from the plainness and sincerity of loyal and thankful hearts, so they were much engaged by his royal favor to continue their fervent prayers to the King of Kings for divine illumination and conduct and all other blessings, both spiritual and temporal, ever to attend his person and government, etc., <clears throat> Thus these men made themselves naked to their shame and declared to the world that they did not only presumptuously arrogate to themselves the name of Presbyterians, whereas in reality they were quite another kind of creatures, acting diametrically opposite to Presbyterian principles, in, congr in congratulating, extolling, and justifying a tyrant 
for assuming to himself a blasphemous absolute power whereby he suspends and disables all penal laws against idolaters, idolaters and gives a toleration for all errors. But whilst these pretended Presbyterians, who all along loved peace better than truth and preferred their own ease before the concerns of their master's glory, were thus sheltering themselves under this refuge of lies, true Presbyterians, who kept by Presbyterian principles and acted a faithful part for Christ, refusing to bow down to the idol of supremacy which the tyrant had set up, or pay any regard to his blasphemous toleration, were pursued, persecuted, and slain without pity or compassion, all the engines of his court being leveled against them for their destruction because they would still reserve to themselves the liberty wherewith Christ had made his people free, and not exchange it for one from Antichrist, restricted with his reserves and limitations. So that, as Mr. Shields tells us in his account of Mr. James Renwick's life, in less than five months after the toleration, there were fifteen most desperate searches, particularly for him, both of foot and horse, and that all encouragement might be given to any who would apprehend him, a proclamation was issued dated October 18th, quote, authorizing all officers, civil and military, to apprehend and secure and firm his person with some others. And a reward was offered for taking him or them, dead or alive. In the midst of all these hazards, this unwearied and faithful laborer did notwithstanding continue at his work in preaching, catechizing, etc., and the Lord still preserved him from falling into the enemy's hand until he had finished that piece of generation work in drawing up a full and faithful testimony against York's toleration and for the covenants and work of reformation, etc., which he gave in to a meeting of Presbyterian ministers at Edinburgh on the 17th of January, 1688 and going thence to Fife, where he was called to preach. In his return, was apprehended at Edinburgh and called to seal his above testimony with all his other contendings against popery, prelacy, Erastianism, and all defection from the land's attainments and reformation with his blood, which he did in the grass market of Edinburgh, 17th of February, 1688, with a remarkable an extraordinary measure of the Lord's gracious presence and spirit, not only in this part of his sufferings, but all the time of his imprisonment. The Lord hereby bearing witness both to the truth of that cause for which he suffered, and also testifying his gracious acceptance of his sufferings, and of the free will offering of his life, which he laid down for his sake. And as neither the violence nor flattery of enemies could prevail with this faithful confessor and martyr himself to quit with one hair or hoof of what belonged to Christ, so he recommended to the poor scattered remnant which he left as part of his dying counsel to keep their ground and not to quit nor forego one of these despised truths which he was assured the Lord when he returned to bind up the breach of his people and heal them of their wound would make glorious in the earth. Thus that worthy minister and now glorified martyr of Jesus through a chain of sufferings and train of enemies fought his way unto an incorruptible and immortal crown of endless glory.
He was the last that sealed the testimony for religion and liberty and the covenanted work of reformation against popery, prelacy, Erastianism, and tyranny in a public manner on the scaffold with his blood. After the death of this renowned martyr, he was succeeded by the eminent Mr. Alexander Shields, who carried on and maintained the testimony, as it was stated, in all the heads and clauses thereof, continuing to preach in the fields. On which account he and the people who attended his ministry were exposed for some time longer to the fury and resentment of their enemies. But their power, which they had so long perverted and abused, quickly came to a period. For in a few months, God, in his righteous judgment and adorable providence, overturned that throne of iniquity on which they depended, and expelled that inhuman, cruel monster from his tyrannical and usurped power upon the Prince of Orange's coming over into England in the beginning of November that same year. But although the Lord at this juncture and by this means rescued and delivered our natural and civil rights and privileges in a national way from under the oppression and bondage of anti-Christian tyranny, arbitrary, and absolute power, yet the revolution at this time brought no real deliverance to the Church of God, but Christ's rights, formerly acquired for him by his faithful servants, lay still buried under the rubbish of that anti-Christian building of prelacy erected on the ruins of his work in this land. And the spiritual liberties and privileges of his house remained, and do still remain, under the bondage of Erastianism, supremacy, toleration, etc. For it is well known that although this man, Jehu-like, destroyed Baal out of Israel, yet he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, wherewith he made Israel to sin. There's a footnote on the sentence regarding Christ's rights, and it says, Christ's rights, by these are not meant the rights of Christ personal. It is not in the power of mortals or any creature to acquire and secure these to him, but the rights of Christ mystical, that is, of the church, or of his truth, true worship and religion, and professors of it as such. About this time, the United Societies, having no actual minister since Mr. Renwick's death, Mr. Shields being only preacher, sent over some commissioners from their general meeting to Emden, one of the United Provinces, to bring over Mr. Thomas Linning, a young man whom they had sent thither some years before in Mr. Renwick's time, to the university there, and for ordination. In consequence thereof, the said Mr. Linning came home with testimonials of his coordination to the ministry by the classes of Emden, and in conjunction with Mr. Shields and Mr. William Boyd, another other of their ministers who had also come from Holland about this time, renewed the covenants, National and Solemn League, and dispensed the sacrament of the Lord's Supper near Lesmabago in Clydesdale, and continued to preach to the people for about four months, till the First General Assembly, so-called, met at Edinburgh, 1689-1690, to at which time he, with his two brethren, in their own name and the name of their people, presented a paper to that assembly, bearing on what terms they and their people would join in communion with them, only craving that they might all join in humbling themselves before the Lord, and acknowledge and bewail their fathers, their own, and the land's many and heinous iniquities and breaches of covenant before they proceeded to any other business, and so have their public sins and scandalous compliances washed away by repentance and calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. 
that they would purge out from among them all ignorant, insufficient, heterodox, and notoriously scandalous ministers, such as by information, accusation, or otherwise, were guilty of the blood of the saints, etc. But these proposals were reckoned unseasonable and impracticable, tending rather to kindle contention than compose division, and so were thrown over their bar. The generality of these men were so plunged and puddled in the ditch of defection and apostasy that they could not think of the drudgery of cleansing themselves in God's way by a particular and public confession of and humiliation for their own and the land's public sins, but chose rather to sit down filthy and polluted as they were, and presume in the midst of their abominations, unrepented of, to approach God's holy things, which, how provoking it to heaven, let God in his word be judge. Nay, it is but too, too evident that for this cause God then laid them under that awful sentence of Revelation 22.11, Him that is filthy, let him be filthy still, or that Isaiah 22.14. For as their hearts were then hardened against God's call by his word and providence to that important and most necessary duty, so ever since they have been so much the more so, and have gone on from evil to worse. But to return to our purpose. The two brethren, Messrs. Linning and Boyd, upon the rejection of the above said paper of proposals, intending to unite with them at any rate, gave in another, importing their submission to the assembly, which paper Mr. Shields also, through their influence, insinuations, and persuasions, was drawn to subscribe and adhere to, which he had never done had he not fallen by the means of these false brethren, and which, it is said, he sadly repented afterward. Thus the poor people were again left destitute of ministers and public gospel ordinances until the Reverend Mr. John Macmillan acceded to them from the public judicatories of the Revolution Church in the year 1706, and their kind friend Mr. Linning to make amends for all his misdemeanors in return for the charges the societies were at about his education at home and abroad did them that good office to write and load them with calumnities and slanders to the universities in the Netherlands, whether they had recourse formally in like cases, so that all access for having their loss retrieved from that quarter was blocked up. What is thus briefly hinted above may suffice to afford some cursory view of the rise and progress of religion and reformation in these lands, especially in Scotland, until as a church and nation our kingdom became the Lord's by the strictest and most intimate federal alliance and the name almost of every city was, The Lord is There, together with the general state and condition of the church and land, from the fatal juncture of our woeful decline unto the end of the above-mentioned bloody period, the faithfulness of some in this time of trial and temptation, the defection and backsliding course of others, and the great and avowed wickedness of the rest, extended unto an exorbitant height of savage inhumanity, your religion, and impiety upon all which the presbytery in duty to God the present and succeeding generations find themselves obliged to testify 1. their hearty approbation of the faithfulness of such ministers and others who opposed and faithfully testified against the public resolutions of church and state framed in the year 1651 for receiving into places of power and trust malignant enemies to the work of reformation contrary to the word of God. Exodus 18.21 
Deuteronomy 113, 2 Chronicles 19.2. And to all acts of assembly and parliament in the reforming period, the assembly disclaiming the resolutions as appears from their act, June 17, 1646, session 14th, entitled, Act for Censuring the Compliers with the Public Enemies of this Church and Kingdom and their seasonable and necessary warning, June 27, 1649, Session 27, where, quote, they judge it a great and scandalous provocation and grievous defection from the public cause to comply with these malignants, etc. And also, Act 11, Triennial Parliament of Charles I, entitled, Act for Purging the Army of Disaffected Persons to the Covenant and Work of Reformation and the faithful warnings given by general assemblies and parliament even against the admission of Charles II to the regal dignity, when so evidently discovering his disingenuity until once he should give more satisfying proof of his sincerity. See Act of the Commission at the West Kirk, August 13, 1650, where the commission of the general assembly, considering that there may be just ground of stumbling from the king's majesty's refusing to omit the declaration offered him by the committee of estates and the commission of the general assembly concerning his former carriage and resolution for the future in reference to the cause of God and enemies and friends thereof, doth therefore declare, quote, that this Kirk and kingdom do not espouse any malignant party, quarrel or interest, but that they fight merely upon their former grounds and principles and in the defense of the cause of God and of the kingdom as they have done these twelve years past. And therefore, as they disclaim all the sin and guilt of the king and of his house, so they will not own him nor his interest otherwise than with a subordination to God. And so far as he owns and prosecutes the cause of God and disclaims his and his father's opposition to the work of God and to the covenant, etc., the which declaration being seen and considered by the Committee of Estates was the same day approved by them. Thus, both church and state exerted themselves in the discharge of their duty in order to obtain a settlement according to the word of God and the covenants which were now become the Magna Carta of the privileges and liberties of the nations, both civil and religious, and therefore were sworn to and subscribed by Charles II as was also the coronation oath for the security and preservation of the true religion at his receipt of the royal power. Number two. The presbytery testify and declare their approbation of the conduct of the faithful before the restoration, who, adhering to the foresaid fundamental constitutions of the nation, both refused subjection unto and testified against the usurpation of Oliver Cromwell and his accomplices, his invading the land, his anti-Christian toleration of all sectarian errors and heresies, threatening the ruin and destruction of the true religion, as well as liberty. This was particularly testified against by the Synod of Fife and others, in conjunction with them as wicked and intolerable, as opposite unto and condemned by the scriptures of truth. Job 34, verse 17, Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 12. Zechariah 13, verse 3. Contrary to acts of assembly and parliament, made against malignants, their being received into places of power and trust, with whom these sectarians were compilers, such as Acts 16th of Assembly 1646, Session 13th, Act 26, Session, Second Parliament, Charles I, etc.
Number three, the presbytery do hereby heartily approve and homogulate the testimony borne unto the truths and royal prerogatives of Christ as King of Zion by the witnesses and martyrs for the same from the Restoration, Anno 1660, to the late Revolution by protestations, declarations, confiscation of goods, bonds, imprisonment, banishment, all kinds of cruelty and suffering, even unto the death, as noticed above, by the impious revolters from the righteous laws of God and overturners of the just and equitable laws of men, both sacred and civil. To the maintenance whereof the greatest part of these transgressors had bound themselves by the most sacred and inviolable obligations, which made their wickedness the more daring and aggravated and the testimony of the saints against such as had made themselves so vile in the sight of God and all good men the more justifiable. Psalm 119, verse 139, My zeal hath consumed me, because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. And, as the doers of the law have the promise of justification by the great legislator, Romans 2.13, so they ought to have the approbation of his people for doing his will. And as the Spirit discovers the church's duty not to consist only in bearing witness unto the truth and justifying Christ's confessors and martyrs in their faithful adherence unto it, but also in testifying against sin and condemning the wicked for their wickedness, for which also we have the precedent of the Reformed and Covenanted Church of Scotland, both before and during the defection and wickedness of the forementioned period, like as the Presbytery did, and hereby to declare and testify particularly, one, against that prime and leading step of defection, the public resolutions, a scheme projected by that arch-hypocrite and traitor to God, Charles II, for the reintroduction of men of the same wicked and malignant spirit with himself into places of public trust in the nation, men, the most of whom had been formerly excommunicated by the Church and excluded from all office-bearing in the Commonwealth by the States in their active classes as being avowed and obstinate enemies to God and to their country, which scheme approven of and put in execution with the consent of a corrupt party of the ministry of the Church, called afterward Resolutioners, made way for that sad and bloody catastrophe which after befell the poor Church of Christ in this land. 2. They declare and testify against the usurpation of Oliver Cromwell with those who subjected themselves unto and owned his authority, against his treacherous invasion of this land contrary to the public oaths and vows and covenant union of the nations, together with his sectarian principles and wicked toleration then obtruded upon them. 3. They declare and testify against the restoration of Charles II, 1660, under the government of these covenanted lands, after he had so plainly discovered his spirit and designs in the matter of the public resolutions, on account of which treacherous and double-dealing with God and man he was, in the Lord's holy and adorable providence, justly secluded from the government, and lived in exile for the space of ten years. But, by means of his malignant public resolution friends, he was again by might, though not of right, restored, without so much as his, as his, his adherents sought to those oaths which he had so formally solemnly sworn. Add to this the church's sinful silence through the influences of the backslidden resolution party therein, so that at the convention of the pretended parliament, anno 1661, 
consisting mostly of persons of known disaffection to the true religion, elected of purpose to serve the king's traitorous designs, there was not so much as a protestation for civil or religious liberties and privileges offered thereunto. But the vile person, as he afterward fully declared himself, was peaceably, though illegally, exalted. Number four. As the Presbytery find themselves in duty bound to testify against this most unhappy restoration of Charles II, so of necessary and just consequence they declare against the whole of his usurped and tyrannical administration, particularly against his blasphemous and heaven-daring ecclesiastical supremacy, against the act recissory declaring null and void the covenants, Presbyterian church government, and all the laws made in favor of the true religion since the year 1638, that wicked anniversary thanksgiving day in memory of the restoration, the reestablishment of diocesan and Erastian prelacy, his publicly and ignominiously burning of our solemn covenants after pretending to nullify their obligation, with all his cruelty, tyranny, oppression, and bloodshed under color and without form of law exercised upon the Lord's people during the whole of his reign. Number five, they again testify against the treachery of these covenanted lands in their advancing, contrary to our solemn covenants and all law and reason, James, Duke of York, a professed papist, and avowed malignant to the throne of these realms. As also they testify against his Christ-dethroning supremacy and anti-Christian indulgences and tolerations, flowing from that wicked fountain, his horrid and cruel massacring and murdering of the saints and servants of the Most High, with all his other wickedness briefly specified in the foregoing narrative. Upon the whole, the Presbytery declare and testify against all the affronts done unto the Son of God, and open attacks made upon his crown and kingdom, all the different steps of apostasy from a work of reformation, and all the hellish rage and cruelty exercised against the people of God during the foresaid period of persecution carried on by these two impious brothers. Part 2 Containing the grounds of the Presbytery's testimony against the Constitutions, both civil and ecclesiastical, at the late Revolution, Anno 1689, as also against the gross Erastianism and tyranny that has attended the administration, both of church and state, since that memorable period, with various instances thereof, etc. After the Lord, for the forementioned space of twenty-eight years, had, because of their manifold sins, sorely plagued this church and nation with the grievous yoke of prelatical tyranny, bloodshed, oppression, and fiery persecution, and thereby had covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger, and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel, and had thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter Judah, yea, brought them down even to the ground. He was pleased, in his holy sovereignty, to put a stop to that barbarous cruelty that was exercised upon his people at the last national revolution, by the instrumentality of the prince and princess of Orange which is the more remarkable in that those whom the Lord employed as the rod of his anger to strike off that monstrous tyrant James, Duke of York, from the British throne, were natural branches sprung up from the same stock. And this, at a juncture, when not only the Church of Christ was in the greatest danger of being totally extirpated, but the whole land in hazard of being again overwhelmed with popish darkness and idolatry. 
But although a very fit opportunity was then offered the nations for reviving the long-buried work of a covenanted reformation, both in church and state, and reestablishing all the ordinances of God in purity according to their scriptural institution, yet, alas, how deeply is it to be lamented that instead thereof the multitude of his tender mercies being forgotten, there was a returning, but not to the Most High, yea, a turning aside like a deceitful bow, so that, in many respects, our national guilt is now increased above what it was in former times. Wherefore, as the Presbytery desires with the utmost gratitude to acknowledge the divine goodness in giving a respite from the hot furnace of persecution, so they likewise find themselves, in duty to their princely master and his people, obliged to testify and declare against foresaid revolution settlement in a variety of particulars with the many defections and backslidings flowing therefrom. Like as they hereby do testify against the Constitution, both civil and ecclesiastic, at the Revolution, Anno 1689, in these respects and for these reasons. 1. Because that, in the civil Constitution, these nations once united together in a scriptural and covenanted uniformity, unmindful of their former establishment upon a divine footing, wherein king and people were to be of one perfect religion, and the supreme magistrate obliged by solemn oath to maintain and preserve the same inviolable, did call and invite William and Mary, Prince and Princess of Orange, unto the possession of the royal power in these lands, in a way contrary to the word of God. Deuteronomy 17.15 Thou shalt in any wise... Set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Second Samuel 23, verse 3. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. In opposition to these clear precepts, the nations did choose the foresaid persons to sway the civil scepter over them, who were neither brethren by birth nor religious profession, being educated in a church where Erastianism prevails, as appears from their ascribing such an extensive power to the civil magistrate as is inconsistent with the intrinsic power of the church. Accordingly, by these principles, said Prince of Orange did regulate his conduct in the assumption of his regal authority, consenting to swear two distinct oaths, whereby he obliged himself to preserve and maintain the two distinct and contrary religions, or modes of religious worship, presbytery and prelacy, and so betrayed both to God and man his politic, worldly views, and proclaimed himself destitute of that truth and religious fear, which is the essential character of every person who may warrantably be invested with supreme authority over the Israel of God. And as they wanted scriptural, so likewise covenant qualifications, namely, known integrity, a proven fidelity, constant affection, and zeal to the cause and true church of God, and therefore could not, in a consistency with the covenanted constitution and fundamental laws of the crown, be set up as king and queen of these covenanted lands. Again, as during the persecuting period, the nations generally were involved in the guilt of perjury and deep apostasy by the many sinful, contradictory tests, oaths, and bonds then imposed. So, in a particular manner, those who, by virtue of their birth and dignity, ought to have been the defenders of the nation's privileges, 
both sacred and civil, on the contrary, as privy counselors to the two impious brothers in their rage against the Lord and his anointed, and as members of their iniquitous parliaments, where, perverting equity and justice, they framed the most heaven-daring and abominable mischiefs into a law, and then with the utmost cruelty prosecuted the same, had many of them brought themselves under the fearful guilt of these atrocious crimes of murder, perjury, tyranny, and oppression, and thereby, according to the law both of God and man, not only forfeited their lives, had the same been duly executed, but also divested themselves of all just right and title to act the part of the nation's representatives, in choosing and installing any in the office of supreme civil governor, until at least they had given suitable evidence of their repentance. Yet, such were the constituent members of that Committee of Estates and First Parliament employed in the Revolution Settlement without so much as making any suitable public acknowledgment of their wickedness in the active hand the generality of them had in the former bloody persecution, as appears from a comparative view of the lists of the members of Parliament and particularly the Duke of York's last Parliament with Act Second of the Acts and Orders of the Meeting of Estates, Anno 1689. Yea, by viewing the lists of James the Seventh his privy council, annexed by Wadro to the second volume of his history, it is evident that a great number of the nobility alone, members of that bloody council, were also members of foresaid convention of estates, the members of which convention, seven bishops excepted, were exactly the same with the members of the first parliament at the revolution. For this, compare second act of the meeting of estates with act first, parliament first of William and Mary. By all which it is evident that from princes who had thus removed the bound and discovered no just remorse for their sins, there was little ground left to expect a happy establishment of religion in restoring the flock of Christ to the full possession of those valuable privileges and liberties wherewith he had made them free. The character of the constituent members being considered, the Constitution itself, and wherein it is inconsistent with our covenanted establishment, and is therefore hereby testified against, comes next to be considered. Although the declaration of the meeting of estates in this kingdom, containing their claim of right, comprehended much more of their civil liberties and formal rights of government than was enjoyed under the former monstrous tyranny, yet by no means sufficiently provided for the legal establishment of our former, former happy reformed constitution, which necessarily obliged the civil rulers to employ their power to maintain and defend not only the doctrine, but also the Presbyterian worship, discipline, and government as the only and unalterable form instituted by Christ in his house. Whereas this craves the abolition of prelacy, and the superiority of an office in the church above presbyters in Scotland, simply as it has been a great and insupportable grievance and trouble to this nation, and contrary to the inclinations of the generality of the people ever since the Reformation from Popery, without regarding the divine right of presbytery and the contrariety of prelacy to scriptural revelation. In agreeableness to which demand, when the first Parliament met in Scotland immediately after the Revolution, which began the day of April 1689, in Act III, Session I, entitled Act Abolishing Prelacy, they abolished prelacy for the foresaid reason, and further declare that they will settle by law that church government in this kingdom which is most agreeable to the inclinations of the people. Accordingly, in the second session of the same Parliament, Act V, June 7, 1690, the Parliament, establishing the Presbyterian Church government and discipline, 
as it had been ratified and established by the 14th Act, James 6, Parliament 12th, Anno 1592, reviving, renewing, and confirming the foresaid Act of Parliament in the whole heads thereof, except that part of it relating to patronages afterward to be considered of, Likewise, in the above-mentioned Act at the Revolution, the 33 chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith, exclusive of the Catechisms, Directory for Worship and Form of Church Government, formerly publicly authorized, and Covenants National and Solemn League, were ratified and established by the Parliament. And the said Confession, being read in their presence, was voted and approved by them as the public and avowed Confession of this Church, without taking any notice of its scriptural authority. And further, in the same session of Parliament, by the royal power, ellenarily, the first meeting of the General Assembly of this Church, as above established, was appointed to be held at Edinburgh the third Thursday of October following the same year, 1690. And by the same civil authority and foresaid act, many of the churches in Scotland were declared vacant. Number two. The Presbytery testify against the ecclesiastical constitution at the Revolution, particularly in regard, first, that the members composing the same were no less, if not much more, exceptionable than of those whom the state consisted, the whole of them, one way or another, being justly chargeable with unfaithfulness to Christ and his covenanted cause, by sinful and scandalous compliance with the public defections of the former times, or actively countenancing the malignant apostasy of the lands, which will appear evident by considering that the Revolution Church consisted of such office-bearers as had, in contradiction to their most solemn covenant engagements, fallen in with and approven of the public resolutions. And these public resolutioners, who had betrayed the Lord's cause, which they had in the most solemn manner sworn to maintain, were, without any public acknowledgment demanded or offered, or adequate censure inflicted, even after that the Lord had remarkably testified his displeasure against that leading step of defection by suffering these vipers, which we thus took into our bosom to sting us almost to death, for this their scandalous defection and perjury admitted and sustained members of the Revolution Church. Again, the Revolution Assembly consisted of such ministers as had shamefully changed their holding of Christ and sinfully submitted in the exercise of their ministry to an exotic head, Charles II, who had, by virtue of his blasphemous supremacy and absolute power, taken the power of the keys from Christ's ministers and afterward returning only one of them, the key of doctrine, to such as accepted his anti-Christian, church-destroying, and Christ-dethroning indulgences, attended with such sinful limitations and restrictions as were utterly inconsistent with ministerial freedom and faithfulness, declaring the acceptors to be men-pleasers, and so not the servants of Christ, of which above. Of this stamp were the most of them, who, without any public acknowledgment of that horrid affront they had put upon the church's true head, dared to constitute an act as the supreme judicatory of the Church of Christ, Anno 1690. Again, the foresaid assembly was almost wholly formed of such as had petitioned for, accepted of, and pretended to return a God-mocking letter of thanks for that blasphemous, unbounded toleration, which that popish tyrant, the Duke of York, as is noticed formerly, granted 
with a special view to reintroduce abjured popery, and therefore, while it extended its protection to every heresy, did exclude the pure preaching of the gospel in the fields, which toleration was joyfully embraced by all the Presbyterian ministers in Scotland, the honored Mr. Renwick only accepted, who faithfully protested against the same. This ends part two of Act, Declaration, and Testimony, read by W.J. Mancaro and produced by Stillwater's Revival Books. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will go on to the next part in this series. If you would like more information on the topics addressed here, please visit our website, where we, come, we carry an extensive selection of books, CDs, and tapes, as well as numerous other resources, some free, on just about every topic of interest to the contemporary Christian. Our website is www.swrb.com. Be sure to sign up for our email super special discount mailings by emailing us at ad, that is A-D-D, at swrb.com if you would like to learn more.